everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. So, I want to address a couple of things. This is our big end of first chunk finale. We're coming up on some major changes to the X-Men franchise, and we wanted to mark it by kind of putting a clear delineation in. So we're going to be covering a little bit of everything today, just about. With me, as always, to discuss the uncanny X-Men is the guy who convinced me to start this whole shebang, Jonah. Hello, everyone. I hope you're ready for our tale end reading to get us to the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah, I'm so goddamn ready to cross that finish line. And to discuss all things champions and championing and champ bionizing and god i hope we never have to talk about this show ever again is kyle oh geez let's put the champions behind us please well we're getting very close we have some final little stories featuring some of the champions before they technically become new defenders and that's going to be a whole lot of fun unto itself the new defenders the initial bit of the run is actually really well received and famously well liked so it's going to be exciting to read some stuff that's a critical success we're also going to be working dazzler into our read-through once she is introduced in the Dark Phoenix Saga. That series is less universally well-liked, and that's going to be painfully evident very quickly. And Uncanny X-Men is about to hit an amazing stride. We're about to see a dynamic change to the cast. We're about to lose the one white lady for the other white lady. This white lady skews younger and is more ethnic, and that's what they were looking for in the 80s. In all seriousness, it's actually really beautiful how Chris Claremont is able to weave Kitty Pride's pride in her Jewish heritage into her narrative in a very powerful way. So, I guess without further ado, we should talk a little bit about what we're going to be looking at today, because we're looking at some crap. So, we just needed to clean up and kind of get through everything else that's either considered part of the run or... Just collected in the standard editions or the larger editions of these titles. So today, we're going to be looking at Marvel Team-Up number 90, which was by Steve Grant, with art by Mike Vosberg and Bob McLeod, because that's featuring an adventure of Beast, who we're going to be continuing to cover in the new Defenders. We're also going to take a look at Bizarre Adventures 27, specifically the Iceman and Nightcrawler stories, both of which were written by Mary Jo Duffy, and featured art by George Perez and Alfredo Alcala, and then... Bob Layton, Dave Cockrum, and Ricardo Villamonte, respectively. Marvel Treasury Edition 27 features a story about the High Flying Angel by Scott Edelman and Brett Anderson. Brett Anderson, who will return to the show for one of our most looked-forward-to episodes, God Loves Man Kills. Marvel Treasury Edition number 26 contained a Wolverine and Hercules story, also by Mary Jo Duffy, and art by Landgraf and Perez. And then we're going to be covering a few more classic X-Men. Guys, I swear, we're like in the final 10. We're going to be taking a look at classic X-Men 41 and 42 by Chris Claremont and Mike Collins, as well as classic X-Men 44. And it's part two, Marvel Fanfare number 60, classic X-Men lost reprints because it was, you know, just not worth it to print them anymore, but they'd already finished it and they didn't know where to put it. So like two years later, they stuck it in the final issue of Marvel Fanfare. And that one's going to be by Anne Nascenti and Kieran Dwyer, and then Anne Nascenti and Dave Ross. So I understand this is a weird hodgepodge, and it's kind of all over the place. And, you know, funny enough, half the characters we're going to be talking about, we've uh, not gotten to yet at all. Jonah, how did you feel about seeing Mr. Sinister and Rogue and Mystique? 
It was a very weird experience because I only know bits and pieces about these characters from what I already know about X-Men. And I, I, again, it's the problem that we're having with Classic of the insertion of characters we haven't met yet. I can kind of see the excuse for it being for Mr. Sinister because he's playing a role in Scott's backstory. And if you're giving us Scott's backstory and he's a character in it, that makes sense. But the Rogue and Mystique ones seem really out of place. They're not introduced yet. We're nowhere near what I assume is going to be their arc for their introduction. So giving us backstory and characterization and all this this stuff about two characters we haven't met yet or probably not near yet for a couple of years uh, when these are first released is really a choice. Yeah, and you know, Kyle, I, I'm not mistaken, this was your first classic X-Men in an episode that you were on, correct? That's correct. So it was definitely a um, surprise to see some of these showing up in the current timeline that we're reading. Yeah, and I know because of your reading experience with X-Men, you're familiar with Mr. Sinister, Mystique, Rogue, and the fact that Mr. Sinister plays a backstory component to Cyclops in a retconned 90s kind of way. So had so oh, you yeah. knew these stories, even if you didn't know these particular issues themselves, right? Right. Now, finding out that these things that you know to be like canon fact were actually from classic backup stories written years later, was that like, how did that feel? Considering like you had to read all this dumb champions that nobody even remembers and no one ever brings up. And then there's this stuff that people bring up all the time that's in like our cast offs. How did that feel? <laughs> Honestly, it was really surprising. I, I had heard about these stories and. I wasn't aware that this was how it actually played out. For me, I just felt that it was so serendipitous that Marvel Treasury Edition had this Hercules and Wolverine story. Bizarre Adventures had an Iceman and a Nightcrawler story. It just made sense that we would take all of this and we would put it together and we would unite the team and we would come together like a crossover event. So I just want to kick this crossover event off with a quick synopsis of the material contained within, and I'm going to turn that over to Jonah. Okay. Marvel team-up number 90. Petey Parker goes to the science fair only to find that all the women are fawning over the beast. The two just happen to catch two villains trying to steal tech. They fail the first fight, but are able to subdue the villains when one tries to pull a King Kong by growing large and hangs off the side of a building. Bizarre Adventures number 27. Iceman story. Bobby is visiting college campuses when he turns into Iceman, saves a day multiple times, is revered by all these 20-somethings. Nightcrawler story. The X-Men have their movie night interrupted when Cerebro picks up only half of a mutant. The team find only half a Vanisher. The curious Kurt touches Vanisher only for them to be transported to some dark dimension not named the Upside Down. The two can't use their teleporting powers, but they are revealed by some beautiful women. Kurt has enough and wants to go home, so he beats up Vanisher and the two barely make it back. Marvel Treasury Edition number 26. Wolverine and Hercules fight in a bar only to realize there is more than enough women in debauchery to go around. Marvel Treasury number 27. Angel gets attacked by someone his daddy screwed over in the past and delivers a badass punch. Classic X-Men number 41 and 42. We venture to Scott's orphanage days when Mr. Sinister does not allow Scott to have any fun. Seriously, he makes Scott's life miserable. Sinister also convinces a kid to commit suicide. Scott seriously cannot catch a break. Classic X-Men number 44, Marvel Fanfare number 60. Rogue just wants to be a normal girl, but Mommy Mystique has other plans, especially since Rogue can't control her powers and nearly kills her young beau. The trauma pushes Rogue to follow Mystique into a life of crime, leading Rogue to get assigned her first mission. Acting irresponsible, almost costing the team their mission, but Mystique and Rogue are able to acquire their mutant target. 
Yeah, that was like that was like a Wikipedia article. It was so all over the place. And but that's what it is. That's what this episode covers. So, you know, I can't think of anywhere else to start except to jump in and make this ish happen. Marvel team up number 90. Kyle, you're our beast correspondent. Defend this. Do I have to? <laughs> There's really no defending this this issue at all. Wow. You know, my actual note for it is seriously unreadable. Yeah. And I wish I was being- it's like, I actually found it really hard to read. It took me quite a while to understand what was going on. Um, I mean, for a moment, you've got Peter being jealous of Beast because everybody wants to be with Beast, and then you've got a Batman wannabe and some giant lamppost trying to steal a microwave. I'm standing here, and I'm looking at Jonah, and I'm like, yeah- this is pretty fair. Yeah. And what sucks is Jonah and I just read the most fun Marvel team-up we've actually gotten to read so far. It was like two episodes ago. It was Nightcrawler and Spider-Man teamed up on a date against the circus. It was so much fun. And it was by Claremont, which makes a lot of sense. Jonah, you've had much less exposure to the Beast, and this could not have endeared him to you. No, we've seen Beast in a couple of Marvel team-ups, but this one, he's just kind of a horn dog a little bit kind of just like a a player he's got so many women just fawning over him and literally wanting to stroke his fur it's probably very surreal considering <laughs> beast i don't think is like the most handsome x-men sure maybe pre-blue fur days but it's weird that they all literally just want to like have sex with him in the middle of a science fair kyle you're absolutely right these two villains are completely removable they the one that looks like a lamppost the electrical skeleton man doesn't make sense he's like some scientist who had his particles scattered so while his particles are scattered he built himself a suit to contain them it doesn't make sense this marvel team up just comes off very clunky very shoved together poorly paced for my money this is the weakest of the classic x character stories of the three defender champion stories this is the weakest definitely agree with that i think that the the next two stories that we read are a step above this well then you know what let's just get to them the iceman story you know i i've read that iceman story a few times i have a copy of bizarre adventures 27 when i worked at the comic shop one day a guy came in with a copy of bizarre adventures 27 and it's not that the book is worth a particular amount of money, but it's a magazine format, so it's a little bit more difficult to get. And when the guy walked in with it, I knew that two bosses were in that day, the boss that knew a bunch of shit about comics and the boss that didn't know a bunch of shit about comics. And sometimes you wanted to go to the boss that didn't know a bunch of shit about comics because he would be like, how much is that worth? And you would just be like, two bucks. And he'd be like, fine, two bucks. You know what, three. And you knew it was worth 20. So you were like, three bucks, no problem. How about I give you a five? But if it was something that looked old and magazine-ish and black and white-ish, you'd be like, that looks rare. One million dollars. So when the guy walked in with a copy of Bizarre Adventures 27, I'm sitting there holding it and I'm like, which fucking boss do I take it to? I don't know what to do. So I take it to the boss who knows comics and I'm like, hey man, I want this. And he's like, oh yeah, more of that dumb X-Men shit you love. A dollar. And I was like, ah, score. Wait, I... Just take it and go. Just take the book. So I've read this 
probably I've owned the book for at least 15 years because that's when I worked at the comic shop. So I feel like I, I remembered this story a little bit more fondly. I don't know if reading classic X-Men where Bobby's a piece of shit and then reading Champions where Bobby's a piece of shit and then reading it here where Bobby's kind of a piece of shit. I don't know. But there was something about this story where I had originally walked away from being like, it's fine. And this time I read it and I'm kind of like, fuck this guy. So I don't know. Kyle, this is more of the Iceman trauma we've been facing. I don't know. I kind of enjoyed it. I didn't really think he was as much of a jerk as he has been. I mean, the the story itself was kind of weird, but it didn't give me as many creepy feels as we've had with Champions. I get that. I don't have as much experience with Iceman as my two co-hosts do. A little bit that we got, Bobby never came off the best, and whatever the reasoning for that was, he wasn't very much a likable character. I don't think he was terrible in this issue. My problem just comes off that, like, he saved the day, like, two times with the same villain, and all these college kids are like, we love you, Iceman, you're great, you should stay here and learn and teach with us, you could be in our frat, and I was like, who wrote, did Bobby write this himself? Yeah, this is some magical Iceman wish fulfillment shit. This is not a bad story, and you know, you're right, Iceman doesn't come off as a jerk, but this definitely reads like somebody sat down at his desk and was like, I could be Iceman. Iceman's underappreciated. I'm underappreciated. It would be really cool if I was Iceman. I would make everything cold all the time, and everybody would love me, and I would make all those statues of all my friends out of ice, and everyone would be like, that's cool, you can make ice statues, and no one would ever judge me again. And, like, it's not even a bad story, but I do kind of feel like I am certainly casting the author of this into a specific narrative role, because it's so, it's so Bobby can do anything. I can I can understand that. Yeah, I mean, between saving the day and then like superpowering Dartmouth's Winter Carnival with his powers, yeah, definitely I can see that as a uh, Bobby wish fulfillment. Bobby's going to Dartmouth visiting. He's a sophomore, uh, and they're having their winter festival, and it's superhero themed. Very convenient, and he sees statues. They have ice statues of all these great superheroes from the Marvel verse but they don't have one of him, and he gets jealous. So he turns into Iceman. People know that Bobby's on campus right now, and then Bobby disappears, and then Iceman appears, and nobody questions it. Nobody puts two and two together. It's very much like when we read the Marvel team-up of Captain Britain and, and Spider-Man, where Captain Britain just assumed Peter Parker went somewhere else in his room, and Spider-Man was there. And do you know what doesn't help? The art... I actually think it's beautifully drawn, but I feel this black and white copy has not thrived over the years. And I think a lot of stuff looks a little hazy and a little hard to make out at times. It can be a little difficult to figure out exactly who you're looking at with some of those statues. And I feel like, I mean, I think that statue of Ghost Rider on the end looks like Little Richard. So I don't even know what to do with it. I so agree with this. I definitely think that this story would have felt a little better with some color added to it. And, like, I'm looking at a page right now where there's just a disembodied uh, hippie's head on one of the panels, and it's just really bizarre. 
But yeah, there's there's other stuff that you can't really tell what's actually happening because it doesn't come across it very well in black and white. And I want to point out that you said it would look better with some color. And I feel like whoever colored the angel story heard you and said, yes, just some color, though, because I actually think the entire comic, with the exception of two panels, is covered almost exclusively in orange, red, white, and this, like, purpley-ish color that they use in a few places. But this story has a very specific color palette for all, like, four pages of it. And it's really eye-catching. I think the story is much prettier than it is interesting because it is the dumbest story not bad and i need to stress that it is not bad i did not walk away from this story and was like man am i annoyed i was this is dumb this is really dumb i don't know who got this story approved because the thing that it harkens back to and this is what really has me gobstopped about this angel story way back in the original kazar number two that is startling so yeah you're you're talking about the the four pages at the end of uh marvel treasury uh 27 right? absolutely it's this weird little story and i just I, it's just so dumb defend it kyle it really is it i mean i get it they're trying to fill in four pages of this book but angel's just really not that um interesting just yet without his money he's really nothing exactly Jonah, this must be like your cumulative like eighth page of angel ever uh, i can say i walked away from this not wanting to actively want to read another angel story angel this doesn't actually have to be about angel this could be about any mutant that could fly and just happen to have a rich father who wronged this man who feels like he needs to kill his son somehow found his son no knew, knew it was his son I, no <laughs> And that it ends on, that one's for dad. I'm, like, insulted for his dead father. But what's actually really interesting is what it's referencing, right? This Kazar number two. What he's referencing is an actual Marvel comic. So it's like the Uncanny X-Men annual with Archon. What? Who fucking wanted this? Who said this? This is what we do. This now. Do this. Picked the hat of unused characters, drew this person, and was like, you know what? We can do an angel story. Really short. It'll be great. We'll only use five colors, and it's going to be fine. That's the color palette. That's Pretend you're painting. Do that. See, I actually love the color palette. I feel like if this color palette had been on any of the issues other than the John Byrne issues, I might have thought Champions was prettier. I definitely agree with that. It looks really nice it's very highly detailed uh, you can see emotion in warren's face what you're commenting on all of that beautiful work in the art that is something that is so special to the next piece that we're going to discuss by brett anderson god loves man kills not to get too excited about it but it is one of my favorite pieces of x-men ever and his art is so perfect on it it's so stunning it's really a treat and he's not somebody who you see too often running around the x books he's not a huge presence but he certainly left a mark with god loves man kills 
That said, I think this might, other than some Astro City, this might be the only thing I know him for. So it's kind of interesting that this second story, I'm like, really pretty. Ultimately, I don't care, though. At least she's pretty. That's all she's got going for her. You know, I don't think I have any more to say on this story, so unless either of you guys want to chime in with something about the high-flying angel and his super dumb revenge scheme, I'm happy to round things out on that last champion and make a beeline to Hercules and Wolverine before they were alternate universe gay lovers. This issue wasn't bad, but I guess I just felt like there was no point to this. I wasn't excited. This fight was just two men trying to big dick each other, and it's not fun to read because it's like, who gives a shit? There's pl- there's literally so many women at this bar. You both can get your dick wet multiple times and not have to like touch the same woman. And uh, but but like I even and cuz I'm with you totally. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm so mad because I actually think both Mary Jo's and Duffy stories get Wolverine really wrong in this and the Nightcrawler story. He's like a petulant child. He's like a hyper exaggeration of can't cry masculinity and i don't think that fits the character and certainly not where the character is at this point in chris claremont's run he's an exaggerated stereotype but and he has all the personality of a cardboard box filled with hair and i have no interest in finding out more about this wolverine i don't know why mary joe duffy's wolverine is so uh what's the phrase i'm looking for awful but he is and i don't like it and this is the most i have liked hercules in our entire read through kyle what was it like getting to see hercules actually fun and have a good time why couldn't we have more of that hercules because it comes with petulant wolverine yeah i'm not happy with this wolverine he's not the wolverine that i know but hercules i like and he's drawn mad hot. Oh yeah. But again, you have all these all these women just hanging off of him and they start fighting over everybody. Yeah, and like I don't know. I can't imagine Wolverine being like I'm not getting enough attention at this bar, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some stuff. He would just like I, I I'm trying to figure out the right way to put this. He would just go to a seedier place and just get some seedier action. Like it just this yeah, is so not this guy. That would be the Wolverine that I know. This is a little too clean of a bar for Wolverine to be in. He would never be in a popular establishment. He always goes to the worst hole in the wall that you can find. Uh, where sometimes I would assume maybe the rats and the roaches wouldn't even go. But I don't get this Wolverine because, especially at this point where we're reading, he's very much fawning after uh, Mariko. As well as still continuing his love triangle for Jean, so I don't understand why he's so upset over this one redhead who he was very cold to. It's not Wolverine is more than happy to hit on a woman. And I also just want to make two points about the art. I actually like. Well, I said Hercules looks hot as hell. I think Wolverine keeps looking like he's made out of licorice, and he looks weird. But beyond that, I keep thinking that the giant lion or tiger statue in the background is like zabu is just randomly in this issue and i keep getting really confused but i also need to point out guys at one point they punch a table and the table cracks it doesn't break it doesn't shatter the table just cracks and then they have this giant cracked but totally 
reasonably standing together table that they're throwing around. And I don't, I've, how do you punch wood so hard it shatters? That's not physically possible. That's not how wood breaks. And especially when we see how strong these two are, it should have just broken and splintered off the first time. There's no way Wolverine's claws get stuck in it and it looks like granite. Actually, just looks like um, like a cork. Does this bar have cork tables? I don't want to go there now. I wouldn't feel good there, but I guess it looks too fancy to have cork tables. But can you imagine you just break a little bit of the table off and close up your drink so you can go home for the night? Let's, guys, new business. <laughs> Let's pioneer it. Do either of you gentlemen have any closing thoughts on the champions complex before we say goodbye? to the champions forever jonah i'd like to give you first crack because you've had the least experience but in your time with the champions like classic x-men number one's bobby tirade or this or any of that wonderful marvel team-up you got to read where do you stand jonah on the champions do you find them to be champions my friend no i find them to be misfits unlikable terrible mean celebrating parents deaths just nothing likable and it just proves to me when you don't know what you want to do with a character and you just make them unlikable not good things are gonna happen no matter how bad the stories were or the plots or like how loose everything can be a lot of people will forgive things if your characters are likable and from what you guys have talked about and discussed no character on the champions ever came across likable and made you want to continue reading the one likable character in all of the champions was Ivan, and he was smart enough to leave first. Kyle, I feel like we've said goodbye to the champions a hundred times. We thought it was over at 17, and then there was more. And then we thought it was over after a bunch of random stuff that gets collected with it afterward, and then there was more. And so now here we are at the ass end of way too many fucking stories about these characters that go in this era, and... We've had solo adventures from a number of them, plus a little bit more of everybody's favorite furry blue beast. Kyle, you've, you've done it. You've survived. We're looking at Defenders. We're looking at Dazzler. How do you feel looking back on your time with California's worst superhero team? I'm glad that I got to uh, read their history a little bit because this was a bit of the original X-Men's history that I was not aware of. So that was nice to uh, experience, but I wish that it had been pulled off a little bit better. And now I am very, very, very much so looking forward to some uh, better stories. You know, I don't think there's much more that I can say that I haven't already said myself. I wish it had been better. I wish the characters that I liked had been used in a way that was more likable and more fulfilling. I ultimately think most of the series was time-wasting and trying to get to the next idea. I wish anything had gone anywhere with Darkstar. All said and done, I'm ready to move on to the next phase of our project. Kyle, congratulations on surviving. And I think that brings us to Bizarre Adventures 27's Nightcrawler story. Jonah, you are the Nightcrawler guy. So, crawl us through this night. I will say this, though. You aren't exactly out of the champion's neck of the woods, since you have a champion's villain in this. And what happens is a result from champions. 
Oh my god. Oh my god. It just won't end. Okay. Why? <laughs> you thought you were done and you thought it was safe to read comics again. And you were wrong. Okay. The one thing I do want to talk about this, and what I think makes this a decent enough story, because I don't think it's this is the worst thing, one of the worst things we've ever read, and I actually kind of liked it a little bit, is that Mary Jo Duffy got Nightcrawler right. She didn't get Wolverine right, and she kind of didn't write uh, Bobby well, but I think she did Nightcrawler a good justice. I like the detail that his favorite movie that he watches all the time is Zorro. That's great. This little bit, I think, comes off as another wish fulfillment, where he's surrounded by beautiful women who want him to be their god. But, like, I didn't hate this, but I don't think anything really happened. And I was just kind of like, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what this was a follow-up to. I mean, I understand it was a follow-up to something I read in Champions, but, like, who was clamoring for this? Who was, like, random classic X-Men villain, Vanisher? Yeah, I really like where they left him off of Champions. Let's bring it up again. No, no one said I that. honestly didn't even remember his story. I don't blame you. I do want to point out one particular thing that really set this apart out of all of our reading. I think this had by far the best art. Specifically, the two-panel spread where they're teleporting through the Darkverse together and they're surrounded by alternate universe versions of themselves. You have on the left what looks like just standard them. Below them to the left, you have them as a badger and a duck. Beneath them, they are some sort of bird spider monsters. To the right, they're female it's a great panel. This is an example of an issue where the black and white in no way negatively impacted the story, unlike the Iceman story where I feel it was kind of hard to pay attention. The art specifically looks a bit different, and I like it. I think it sets it apart. It's got a very European feel, and I enjoy that. I think there's some abstract to it. It's going to look a bit like the Captain Britain we're going to read later on, from the 70s and 80s. And I just feel there's a lot of personality to this story. There's a lot of personality to the art. And other than the fact that all of these stories are designed to feel like they go nowhere and kind of do nothing, <laughs> I think it's a good time. I actually liked it. It reminded me of a arc from Excalibur coming up in the future, the cross time caper. Them just getting ported into a completely different universe where things just aren't the same. So that was kind of cool seeing something that reminded me of that. I have my copy of the Cross Time Caper Epic Collection right here, as a matter of fact. So, Jonah, when we signed up for this big shebang and we said we're going to do this podcast, and I said we're going to cover everything Nightcrawler there is, and we've had so many great Nightcrawler stories. We had... The Amazing Spider-Man two-parter. We had a number of Marvel team-up stories. And I feel like Nightcrawler's really come into his own as a character who gets spotlight. The people we're comparing him to are original X-Men and Wolverine, and he's getting just as much spotlight. So how fulfilling has it been, 18 episodes in, that the character you did this for has kind of like risen to the cream of the crop? I think it's actually really interesting. I think one thing I like about how the way they write Kurt is Kurt's stories and Kurt's nuances never have to take away from someone else's spotlight when he's not in it. He never feels like he's overshadowing people or that his lines could be said by anyone. He's very unique. He's really 
sweet. And I think I just really appreciate that they have, even though there's such a large cast on in Uncanny X-Men, he's able to set himself apart, especially for someone who is brand new and not everybody knew about. As Nico said, he's competing with older, from the original team. He's competing with other really popular characters. Yet he's able to still find a way to bamf into my heart and set himself a part of why I just really loved him in the first place. I agree. I do think Nightcrawler does stand apart and is more fun. He's a great breath of fresh air when the characters he's next to are Banshee, who never gets dialogue unless it's tragedy, Colossus, who's always bummed out, at one point Sunfire, who was, you know, just a giant mega dick. So it's been an adventure and one I've enjoyed. However, something I enjoy considerably less is classic X-Men, and I'm so glad we're almost done with it. We have these few stories, plus what I refer to as the Dark Phoenix Suite. Most of the remaining classic X-Men stories either tie into the Dark Phoenix Saga itself or Dazzler, who's introduced in there. We will be covering those stories as well, but we thought since these don't really correlate to anything we're going to be talking about going forward... It was best to get them out of the way now. So, Kyle, this was your first foray into classic X-Men, as we established earlier. You know, somehow you managed to be here for two of the better stories. Yeah, I I was pretty excited about that. You know, I don't think to myself, yeah, mm-hmm. let's let's write a story about convincing a kid from an orphanage to kill himself. I don't normally say, hey, that's what I want to put in my superhero comics. Now, no. Jonah, you don't have any idea who Mr. Sinister is, really. And now there's this pasty dude with a diamond in his forehead and sharp metal teeth making kids kill themselves. And that's very confusing for where you are in canon. (laughs) How are you limping away from this one? Well, first, he looks like Sigma from the Mega Man series. So we got that going for us. I was just confused. But when reading this, Scott just comes off needlessly tragic needlessly nothing can go right for him throughout these entire two issues that we're reading and it's just like who actually wants to read that you can have sad issues but when your issues are so depressing and they have a kid commit suicide and just literally just show scott being abandoned by everyone i don't even i don't think it's necessary and it's like this doesn't make me like scott more Because you know what would be nicer is if Scott was a better person and came through this and was like, you know what, I had a really shitty childhood, but I'm a better person for it. And he had more personality instead of being so completely walled off from everyone and everything. And it's like, I understand why he does that now, but I don't like the way how we got there. It also seems strange that this is just shoehorned into the Dark Phoenix Saga issues. I don't understand other than... It's meant to shine a little bit more spotlight on Scott, who was a large player in the Dark Phoenix saga. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this, putting it here. Maybe it's just that this is where there was room for it. I don't know. However, it also felt like an unnecessary retcon. Now, Kyle, this is your first time having a character inserted a hundred issues before they're meant to appear. Yeah. We've had that way too many times because we've been covering the series. But this is your first time with that jarring character decision. Were you, like, thrown? If you had been reading your issue of Classic X-Men and all of a sudden this popped in instead, 
would that have taken you out of the story? I honestly would have no idea what was going on. It seemed really weird, but I mean, having read all this, all the stuff up to the early 90s, I know what's actually going on, but yeah. We're on Uncanny X-Men, roughly 129, and if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Sinister doesn't properly appear until the two-somethings? might be 230s so it's very frustrating and while we are much closer to mystique and rogue's first appearances we are not there yet and now they're foisted upon us we are coming up soon on avengers annual number 10 i believe we will be covering it between 149 and 150 of uncanny but we are not there yet and here's Rogue and Mystique. And it's such a pivotal backstory for Rogue. It's such a pivotal moment for her. This isn't just some minor detail. This is something that many writers have alluded to. This is something the movies have made reference to. The cartoons have made reference to. We knew this about her before we knew her first name was Anna Marie. So I'm fascinated by the decision to include this in X-Men Classic, which, again, Classic was coming out once Rogue and Mr. Sinister were well integrated into the canon, but it was a reprint of a story much earlier, and that would be very jarring for someone who wasn't reading current. Jonah, this leapfrogged you like 30 issues of X-Men. You'd never met Mystique, you've never met Rogue, you've never met Destiny. I don't think you've met Pyro yet. Where did this story sit for you in terms of what you've read? The problem that arises when you're introducing characters before their main canon, their main story appearances, is I don't. You're giving, you're telling me to to fall in love with them. You're telling me to feel certain ways about them. You're trying to introduce me to these new characters that I don't have any information yet. So, but you're given less pages, and you're throwing me off a little bit. I think you're throwing your readers off. Because now I don't know when this is happening. What's going on with the X-Men? Is this happening while they're in Japan? Is this happening while they're fighting in Canada? Like, what what's going on? And it's just confusing because when I'm reading classic, I'm expecting, like, an insert into what the main story that's going on. But this is... It's not that I did not enjoy these. I guess I was just... I just don't know these characters. And so when you're throwing them at me, I don't know how to feel yet. And if this is what you want my first impression to be... Well, I didn't really get much of a first impression. Yeah, this would be a terrible first impression. Now, Kyle, you've read these characters before, but you'd never read these particular stories despite knowing they've been alluded to forever. Do these feel like they live up to kind of like the legend that is Rogue's origin? I think that the story in Classic 44 did. That was pretty much the story that I had known about her early times with her power. I wasn't expecting her to be as young as she was portrayed in, in that book. I was a little more shocked with how much older they made her look in Marvel Fanfare 60. So it was a little off-putting. And part of that is probably that the classic X-Men story had art by Kieran Dwyer and Hilary Barta, while the Marvel Fanfare story had art by Dave Ross and Joseph Rubenstein, and while it was commissioned at the same time and ultimately intended to be run the next month, even though it was held for over a year, it is jarring that these are meant to be back to back. We've got the 
Scott's story that's clearly mostly about a villain that we haven't met yet that takes place way in the past, and while we're not covering it this episode, the, the classic story in between ties directly into the Dark Phoenix saga, afterward, and then you've got this Rogue and Mystique story that I guess could take place around now in Rogue's timeline, perhaps, but it's all very nebulous and very confusing, and it does not help that the original printing was delayed by several years, and most people don't know that it's in this other title. It's certainly a strange story that this was held for so long. Mm. That said, I feel like it's an okay version of what Claremont probably delivers better in three-panel flashbacks. It just runs a little long for me, and I feel like there is no consistency in Rogue's character in the two stories, despite the fact that they were written by the same person. Yeah, I definitely agree that her character was not consistent. Like I said, she came off as a little child in the first story. In the second one, she came off as a petulant teenager. And even in the second story, she, I mean, she was absorbing uh, other people's memories, but she was wildly inconsistent throughout that story. This is actually really fascinating for me to hear because at this point, Rogue is an established character and I know that she has characterization. And I agree with Kyle that this is wildly inconsistent between back-to-back issues where she's very naive and doesn't want to be a mutant to literally being addicted to using her mutant power. It's really jarring and I kind of oddly have to say that I think I like Mystique more in these. Which is, I know is going to be a weird statement, even though I don't know much about what Mystique is going to do in Maine Uncanny. I liked her a lot more in this, because she just came off very motherly, very, she just wants to do what's best for Rogue. More so herself, but a little bit of Rogue's interest in this. Yeah, well, like, she wants to do what's best for her while forcing her into a life of crime. There's that. She's still a good mom about it. It's kind of like weeds. It's kind of like weeds. I... I get it. We all got to do what we got to do, Nancy Botwin. So, you know, I'm thinking about how much we've already covered. And we're staring down the Dark Phoenix saga. And that's a really transformative time for the X-Men as a title. The story that we're going to read that begins in 129 is not completed in 137 the way anybody that began 129 intended. There was a lot of editors being like, what the fuck did you people do and so much of what made this run iconic is adjusting by the seat of their pants and we're going to see a new era for the characters of x-men that had been relegated to the champions they're going to join either the defenders or i think they're technically the new defenders and we're going to see a number of them pop up in dazzler's title dazzler's going to join the ranks of the mutants of the marvel universe when she starts appearing in uncanny x-men starting with 130 And the X-Men is going to become a very different title. While Jean's role in the X-Men was, in many places, an undercurrent for the last two years, Kitty Pryde is going to be all anyone fucking talks about ever again. So, that's awesome. And... I love her. I can't wait. She's just so great. And, Jonah, you just read, really, what amounts to the first major chunk of x-men before what i consider kind of like the classic era finale 
How much do you feel? What are you walking away with, man? Talk to me. I want to know. We we close out a chapter with this. We just did Proteus, and that was fucking amazing. And I mean, this was less amazing. But talk to me about your uncanny experience. One thing I do want to say is I don't think I'm more prepared to be able to love a character and excited to read than Kitty Pride. I think probably it's the most hype and one of the probably the the character that I'm like, all right, I'm ready. I already love you. I don't know anything about you yet, but I, I already love you. Okay, it's great. So that's that's exciting. But something I, I've realized reading all main uncanny, starting with Giant Size X Men number one, is I don't think they had an idea of how popular this was going to get and how successful it was going to be. And I think and what I've realized is that Chris Claremont. When he gets to use his toys, I think he, when he was starting to get his feet and he was really utilizing his characters well, I think it's what set the precedent for a lot of comics and a lot of Marvel in general of what what is going to come. I realize that not many people know how to write his characters well. They don't come off in the same Claremontian way and they don't, they don't seem the same when someone else has gets to write them. I'm just really, I've been really excited and X-Men has been on what I would consider a real exponential curve of excitement and storytelling and well-writtenness and the art has been consistently amazing. It's really interesting to see this nothing team start to slowly gain popularity and have stumble a little bit while it's trying to fly and then just fucking zoom at Mach 10 and really take off. The last few arcs in Uncanny that we've read and talked about and discussed we're kind of amazing and now we're entering what i assume is the most iconic x-men arc and one of the most i guess associated with the x-men in general and i am very excited to get to it and see you know where the x-men can go from there i can't agree more kyle i know you've been a bit more of an outsider looking in on the x experience but You've had an opportunity to interact with these characters a number of times, a number of ways. Looking back on where things started with the show, from what you've listened to and your own reading, how have you watched the X-Men transform from giant size number one slash 94 to here in 128 as we face down the Dark Phoenix saga, which you're joining us for, so. Oh, awesome. Let me just say that I can feel the energy building. It's, it's exciting and i honestly can't wait neither can i and to keep everybody abreast of what we're going to be looking at the next episode is going to be uncanny 129 to 131 along with classic x-men backups 34 35 39 36 and 40 they're in that order because that's the order they take place the episode following will cover Uncanny X-Men 132 to 137, as well as Classic X-Men 43, and the Phoenix story from Bizarre Adventures. After that, things are going to go back to normal for a little bit, and we're going to continue to cover Uncanny, as well as begin our foray into Dazzler. So, we've got some pretty big stuff coming up, and I'm really excited to share it all with you guys. Really fast, Nico. You've read majority of the, the stuff that we've read before already. You've read the, the main Uncanny run. Through reading it again and reading all the supplemental material, how has your opinion changed on the X-Men? Did you learn anything new? Do you have any new character insights? Did you like someone that you didn't like before? Do you dislike someone that you liked before? Like, how has this experience affected you? 
This experience has affected me in the following ways. I no longer like Iceman. I like Angel a little less than I did before. I find most of the classics completely pointless. I now understand that John Bolton can draw anything. Holy shit. I recognize filler issues are all predominantly the same thing over and over again. It's Claremont writing some version of X-Men versus some faceless horror who we never see again or robots or clones or holograms of previous X-Men. I've come to realize that even if an X-Man leaves the team, they're probably just going to wind up on Muir Island. And I had no idea how many times Chris Claremont used the Muir Island X-Men in every other fucking book in the Marvel Universe. I had not realized how much the X-Men interacted with Power Man and Iron Fist. That was certainly eye-opening. Fuck the Griffin! And I think (laughs) that is everything I learned. You know, thanks for asking. Sometimes I forget to share my experience back. And it's been really fascinating, and it's been really eye-opening. These classic stories have changed my opinion on things. Getting to read that amazing Spider-Man... Nightcrawler team-up was awesome. Some of these Marvel team-ups have been less than awesome, and that's been fine, too. Realizing that, well, even the writers thought Ghost Rider was as useless as we did on the Champions with their constant references to his uselessness was fascinating. And, you know, for a little drop-in on our other title, I have really appreciated getting to reread Captain Britain with Kevo, and it was really tremendous getting to share a really bad era of a character I love a lot with him. Unfortunately, there was no new material in Captain Britain for me to read, but getting to read it with the person I love the most was just such a reward unto itself. So, all right, until it's time for that Dark Phoenix to come and burn away what doesn't work, Kyle, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me in both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. And Jonah, where can all your fans find you bamfing around? If you would like to see me teleport between Nico and Kevo's place and school for me, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Uh, Nico, where can everyone find you and your Phoenix self? As always, you can find my inclusive, diverse comic, Kid Riot, at KidRiotComics.com with the adventures of our awesome speedster and his amazing team. You can also find me other places all over this network, like Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend, Chris, where we take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series in order, like crazy people. We're also right now working the Carly Rae Jepsen Emotion Minute, so I hope everybody enjoys that. We're doing a deep read on her discography. Of course, there's always MCU.HTML, which I do with the incredible, wonderful husband, uh, Kevo, where we talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've got some incredible stuff coming up as we crescendo into Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, I don't know if everybody heard him, but the amazing Captain Britain co-host Kevo makes his background noise appearance, as he loves to do. I'm always here. He is always here. Don't ever forget it. Additionally, if you're enjoying the network, you should check out the Patreon and throw a couple dollars their way and help shape what happens on the network going forward. I am Nico Action on Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And additionally, it looks like the entire Excess for Podcast team is going to be making some appearances this year at cons where you'll be able to pick up some amazing Excess for Podcast swag as well as some MCU swag. So do mark on your calendars FlameCon in New York this August. We will be there and it will be awesome. So until the Phoenix flies again, 
We will see you guys in the funny pages. See ya. Goodbye.